This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So for those of you that have been here the last three weeks or the previous three Sundays, uh, we've been walking through something that is tactical, it's, it's on purpose. The, the topics were actually discussed uh, as a, a pastoral team, and it wasn't just me coming up with four different topics, it was us as a pastoral team coming up with four topics, and again, this is one of them. Uh, and so I'm going to at least give a, a, a brief review. We're going to have a Q&A at the end of this, as has already been discussed, And it's just my desire that our church would be held and maintain a great strength. Uh, I I gave the illustration to the pastoral team on Tuesday. I think it was the pastoral team that I said this to. But our church, I'm not really concerned for us in the midst of some of the things that are happening in Christianity right now. It's a very unstable time in the global sense of the church, and there's a lot of... uh, attack. Uh, it's, it's very intense right now. And because of the way that I'm wired, I, I focus a lot on the global church as well, not just the local. And so I have, I've just been carrying a tremendous burden uh, in my life. Because I mean, for why I care about the global church always shocks me. It's like I've received far more pain out of the global church than I have any other place. And yet I deeply care and I think it's because I care about the glory of God primarily. And I, I know this is his instrument. This is his chosen instrument. And I feel the vulnerability of it. But I don't necessarily, this is what's interesting, I don't necessarily sense it in here. And so I likened it to like we're driving down the road uh, in our car. And you roll down the window and you stick your hand out. And suddenly whew, you feel a completely different wind than you do inside your car. Same wind. But because of the health of the car and the fact that you have everything in place, you can endure great difficulty. You can be in the same culture but not have it affect you as it is just outside that window. And you stick your hand out that window and you're feeling something that is a lot different than what you're feeling inside the car. And over these past few weeks, it's like I've been going down the road with my hand out the window and uh, had quite a few bugs hitting my my hand. And uh, it's... It's a, it's a weight that I have, and I know many of you in here have it, but uh, it's just interesting transitioning as we are right now, as this is all happening. It gives me, I guess you could call it the paternal, the father burden for our church here. I want to see it maintain that strength. I want that windshield to be in place. I want this car to be healthy so that we don't lose a tire. We don't end up in a ditch. I want us to, to be strong, and that's a good desire. It's not because I see us as being weak now, I actually see a lot of health, a lot of great things that I would brag about. If someone were to come up and ask me about my kids, you know how you like to share like highlight points with your kids and you know, and Kip is doing this, Hudson got involved in this. You know, you're just a parent. You like to point out their positive. That's the way I would be with you guys too. It's like, so tell me about your church. I heard that, heard that churches stink these days. Well, let me tell you about my church. You know, I, I would want to brag about our church and there's a lot to brag about. 
And yet we are in a transition. And transitions create vulnerability spots. They just do. It's like the handing off of a baton. If you don't hand off the baton, it's going to stay a lot easier in one hand. But when you hand off a baton, there's that in-between gap where you can bobble it. And I feel like this handoff so far has been extremely strong. And I just desire to see it fully handed off well. It's like, okay, we got that thing. This is, this is going well. And that's why we're actually going through this. This was a recommendation from, I want to say Bo is the one that brought it up, but I'm not positive, uh, and he may not want me to give him credit for it if the, if the message goes south today. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. Uh, but this is a, if you look at the terrain of Ellerslie, our formation of Ellerslie, the formation of Eric and Leslie's ministry all those 25 years ago when we started, this is a principal point of reason. And so anyone who goes through Ellerslie training is going to understand the endless frontier and what that means. Now, if you've never gone through Ellerslie training, it's possible you've never heard this, okay? Even though you've been in the church 10 years. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But it's a deep, deep part of who I am. The guy speaking to you, this is a big part of how I am. And so it's interesting to consider bringing this in to this transition because it's part of how this church even started comes with this, where we're calling the Endless Frontier Approach, okay? Not the greatest name. I wasn't overly impressed with the titling, uh, but you guys know I, I take my titles very seriously, f- far more seriously than I should, right? But I always think about that. It's like, hey, I don't like that title. But it, it works for what we want to do today. The, the subtitle I wasn't overly impressed with either, but it sort of fits the flow of what we're talking about because there's a great deal of God left to explore. A lot of us have an encounter with God and then we oftentimes will just stop right there. It's like, oh, I got it all. I I figured out Christianity. No, I prayed the prayer. I I got that. I I checked it off my list. Encountered God. Check. When in actuality, if you've encountered God, then one thing you should know is that there's a whole bunch more of God to discover. God is endless, eternal, so vast. And if you ended up, you know, coming as a pilgrim over to this country and you hung out in Plymouth, and you were to conclude that you are, you've arrived, you've explored the entirety of this new world, you would have fallen f- so far short of what this new world has to offer. The different climates, the different terrains, the different uh, landscapes, the different vistas that you could view and share in, the different caves that you could, uh, could explore, the different uh, bodies of water that you could sail the mountains you could climb, the valleys you could ascend into. It's like, oh, there's so much that you could discover that's more than just what you have in Plymouth. Are you in, a, are you in the United States or in the New World? Sure. It's not that it means that just because you didn't explore it, you're not really in this country. No, you are. But boy, if you had an explorer's mentality, if you had the idea that this is all able to be accessed and gained and discovered, whoa, well then, hey, you're going to live differently. So this is a quick review. We've had three parts. This is our fourth part uh, to a series. And the first part was called Removing the Tent Stakes. And that was the illustration of a tree and that at a certain point in time, it's actually healthier for the tree to have tent, uh, tent stakes. Did I say tent stakes? A tree stakes removed. Here's the problem. When you get to understand the endless frontier, you'll understand where the tent stakes comes in because it's part of the endless frontier. This is really confusing. Having tree stakes and tent stakes. But you stake a tree because it's young and it's vulnerable. 
And if wind comes up and gusts against that young tree that doesn't have an established root system, it can pull it out very easily. So what you do is you supply it that extra help. Those, t- those tree stakes come in, you wrap it with that special tree wrap, which protects it from certain vulnerabilities of disease and uh, insect infestations. You're supplying it extra help. But then when it gets to a certain point of maturity, you want to unwrap it. You want to pull up those tree stakes. And the reason is, is because that tree is mature enough and ready to actually hold itself up. And even though that first gust of wind that comes against it is going to test it, it's actually healthy for the tree to face it at that point in time. And if you don't do that, you're actually robbing the tree of its full maturity possibilities of what God intends for that. And so we were describing that as being where we're at as a church. Our leadership, our local church leadership here is extremely stout and strong. And they are ready to carry the weight of this church. And so we've gone through this unique thing over the past year of, well, what does that mean then? How, how do we navigate through this? And it's, it's been, I, I have to admit, an unusual situation where you don't just look at and go, well, this church handled it this way. It's like, I, we don't know of another church like us. So where, the, where we sort of emerge out of a school, create a local church, and then what, what do you do then? I mean, how does this work? So we've been exploring that, and it's been a beautiful process. I, I, if I'm going to give you a summary statement, it's been a wonderful, honorable process. But now we're bringing it before you guys that, okay, we're ready to do something, and that is we're going to pull up some tree stakes. And we're going to let this uh, church be able to be tested without that, those tree stakes in place. We went through the wonder of change of talking about the significance and the importance of change, that there's bad change and there's good change. And bad change erodes. Uh, in, in other words, I, I could do things in my life right now and I could, they could be really bad decisions. And it would be change of my life and it would take me the wrong direction. But there's also a change that is necessary. It's, it's interesting because even sanctification itself is a change. Right? God is refining me. He's changed me. He's convicting me. Why? So that I would change. I would change my thinking. I would change my behavior. I would change the words that I speak, the life that I live. And that's the process of what the Holy Spirit is bringing us through. And then he does it corporately too, which is a weird thought. To think that he doesn't just sanctify Eric Ludi as an individual, but he also sanctifies us as a body and he's refining us. And he's saying, hey guys, I'd like you to progress in this direction. But change is uncomfortable for many of us and we would prefer just to sort of stay where we're at. But God loves us too much to allow us to remain where we're at, and he presses us onward into maturity. As any parent can testify, that is a process of raising children. And so you're going to always be at that place where sometimes you as a parent are wanting your child to grow up and to change, and other times you want them to stay young. Have you ever noticed that? You sort of battle that that tension because it's like, I I need my children to grow up so they can help clean the house. I've had that thought many times, okay? When I had, we had six kids, six and under at one point in time. You do, now, two of them weren't yet home from Haiti, but I tell you what, just having them in Haiti and going through all that was the equivalent of having them in the house. It was so intense in our life. We had six kids, six and under. In other words, they weren't contributing anything at that time. Okay, all, well, they were contributing a mess is what they were doing. And then we're following around cleaning up. And what you're wishing for them is to grow up. And I want them to be able to clean up their mess. Okay, they can make a mess. Okay, I I want them to be kids. But then they need to know how to clean up their mess instead of daddy coming along and cleaning up the mess. So you want them to grow up. And the next thing you know, they start growing up. And what do you do as a parent? No, I don't want you to grow up. You stay young. You stay just as cute as you are right now because you're starting to lose that cuteness. uh, And we want to keep that. 
And so there's this tension. We all go through it. Change threatens, and it's also welcomed at the same time. There's a beautiful side of change and a difficult side of change. Last week was a message called Proven, and we were talking about the the pastoral letters that Paul writes. He has uh, one to Timothy, he has one to Titus, which are giving the clarifications of what sort of men should lead the church and what should we look for as a body. And most of us as modern Christians, we actually steer away from these scriptures nowadays. Why? Because a lot of churches don't have such men. So what do you do? If you don't have men that fit the qualities, do you just not have leaders in the church? Tension. In other words, this is a modern crisis that we have in the church. We don't have men that have been proven, and as a result, you don't know what to do as a church, so you just ignore those scriptures. In this church, we have an inverse problem. We have so many men that actually are ready to take leadership position and actually could carry the weight, even if it's a smaller weight, not the full church, but sub-weights sub in the church, and yet we don't have the space for it. And that's where it comes to someone like me in my position. It's like, well, if I want this church to grow up and I want to give it headroom to grow up, what do I do? How do I, in a sense, take a lesser place to allow someone else to grow in ministry? I have plenty of responsibility. I'm not shortchanged if I don't have my leadership position here. It's not like I'm just out on the streets. I have so much weight and responsibility in my life. I'm not looking for it. But there are other men in this church that actually should have opportunity. And even if they don't want it, like right now, you're like, I hope he's not thinking about me. Actually, it's the best gift we could give to you is spiritual responsibility. I would call it spiritual employment. We all need to be spiritually employed. And some of us don't really want the spiritual employment. And I don't blame you at a certain level. You get more spiritual havoc when you have spiritual employment. And that's what you need. Just like a young tree needs wind. Just like a young tree needs to be tested. That's what's going to strengthen its root system. It's going to st- if, if a young tree that is strong enough and ready for those weights suddenly goes without the normal watering, you know, where that owner comes out and dumps a big bucket on it every morning, it's like, ah, it feels so good. And then suddenly that owner isn't doing that anymore because the tree's ready to start going after its own water. What it's going to do is it's going to stick its roots deeper. That's good for every single one of us. If you suddenly get the job of preaching... You'll notice that your roots will start going deeper instantaneously. Your prayer life will spike overnight. Why? Because you don't feel qualified. You don't feel ready. This is perfect. See, so when we as leaders begin to sense that someone's ready for that, it's important when they are showing that they're proven that we give them opportunity to take those next steps. Even if they're uncomfortable ones, it's actually very healthy for the body, just like it is for our physical body to exercise. And when you're ready to carry greater weights, what should you do? You should increase the weight. That's the principle of athletics. I could have uh, Aaron Vogel come up and give us a teaching on the importance of increasing difficulty, increasing the strain, and that's what causes the body to develop. Well, we're a body. Let's develop by increasing those weights. So there's a principle in the Old Testament. A lot of us don't always recognize that the Old Testament sets a pattern. It sets a pattern in historical sense, in geographical sense, and there's something that is being laid. It's a picture of something that prepares us to see Christ. It prepares us to understand his work on the cross, and it prepares us to understand the work of the church of Jesus Christ. It's weird because you don't, when you read the Old Testament, it doesn't talk about the church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't talk about all this. And yet everything in the Old Testament is like a handoff to the new. How do we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah? Because there's a Messiah that's foretold. 
how do you know that Jesus was that Messiah? I mean, he could have just said, hey, I'm the Messiah, and we just all fell for it. How, how do we know? Because there's a test in the Old Testament that if he doesn't pass that test, he is not the Messiah. But if he does pass it, he is. And I, many of you have heard me speak on it. I have a message called Canon, which basically goes through that Messiah test of the Old Testament. We stand it up against Jesus, and all that happens is your jaw drops to the floor, and you go, wow, he in fact is the Messiah. Uh-huh. But how did you know that? Because he matched the Old Testament. In other words, there's a proving that comes before. And even though the Old Testament isn't able to deliver us in and of itself, in other words, it can give us law, can give us prophecy, but in and of itself, it cannot save. If you could heed that law all day long, and it wouldn't save you, there's only one that can save, and that's in the New Covenant. His name is Jesus Christ. It's through the shedding of his blood that we find salvation. It's faith in Christ Jesus. And yet that Old Testament isn't removed of its value. We just know how to properly place it in the story once Christ comes. And so it's just like uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a forerunner, just like the Old Testament is. And it's crying in the wilderness of all places. It's the very place the law was given. It's crying in the wilderness saying that there is one that is following, one that will come. And when he comes, I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals. I mean, this, this one that is coming is so much superior But that doesn't mean John the Baptist was a dud. It doesn't mean that we should throw out John the Baptist. However, when the Messiah comes, John the Baptist is silenced. Did you notice that? John the Baptist's voice stops. But it doesn't mean that we forget John the Baptist. We say, oh, what a terrible critter he was. What we recognize is there is a forerunner that leads to Christ. And so what we see in the Old Testament is Moses is giving sort of a forerunner voice. He's giving a foreshadow of a kingdom. And so Deuteronomy is a long book, and it's really extra unusual when you think of Deuteronomy as a speech, one long speech. It's like the last gasp of Moses. It's like, wow, he gasped for a long time. (laughs) This is a big book, and yet it's a final words. I can't just imagine him saying it like this in summary. I represent something, and that is the law. So I can't take you into the land of promise. Joshua will be the one to take you in. Same name as Jesus. But before you go, I want to give you the framework of how that kingdom on the other side of this Jordan needs to be established. And so when you understand the book of Deuteronomy and you recognize he's giving a pattern for how a kingdom is to be established on the far side of the Jordan by who? Joshua. You recognize, wait a minute, this is a pattern that is being set even for us as the church. And we can look at Deuteronomy and recognize that we're getting a pattern from a forerunner saying, and when you come in, recognize this. This is how the kingdom will work. So I call this little by little. And in Exodus, we see this same concept coming out. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. This is God speaking. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canite and the Hittite from before thee. Listen to this statement. It's extremely fascinating. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. Okay, now if you're heeding God's directions and you're coming into the land of promise, what should you expect? You're going to step across that line and all your enemies are going to melt away. Yeah, we're serving God. And so if God's going to go before us, it's just like you step over and they all turn to ash and then the wind blows and they just blow away. 
Yeah, that would be the way we would do it. And God says, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee. So when you come into your Christian life, serving the living God, serving Joshua or Jesus, many of us have this presumption that when we first arrive in the kingdom of heaven, God has destroyed everything and we just sort of walk in and sort of take a break now because we have the land. Instead of recognizing that we are taking territory. Do you know that even in your own soul, when the spirit of God moves in, he is taking it little by little by little. And he's conquering territory in your life. Why would it take time? Why doesn't he just deal with it? Turn my enemies to ash. There's things that you haven't been convicted of yet that God knows that you still need to deal with. But he's taking it little by little. If he took it all at once, then you sat back on your haunches and didn't try anymore, didn't exercise. You see, there's something about the exercise of the soul taking little by little, and he wants you to participate. Did you know that he didn't just knock out all the enemies for the Israelites? He's the one that gets the credit. He's the one that fought the battles, but they had to actually pick up their sword and spears and their shields and go in. It's like, God, why wouldn't you just take care of them? Well, what's interesting is the cross has done the work, but we need to pick up the weapons and go in and actually agree with God and exercise. It's the same with shooting down your roots. You see, God says, I need to pull up these tree stakes. I need to unwrap this. Why, why would you do that, God? Why would you put it? Because I want to grow you up. I want to test you. I want to prove you. God, why you don't need to do that? Why do we need to be exercising anything? Well, as it says here, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee. Someone asked me uh, a while back what my longevity in ministry, I could put it on. It's like, Eric, how have you lasted in ministry? Because most people don't. And I'd say, well, God has given me a great gift. Leslie and I have received undue amounts of suffering. I just gave you our secret right there. Difficulty is our secret sauce because the difficulties have built us. We've had to learn how to respond to those difficulties. Our root system has gone down deeper. It is clinging to rock. So at first, it doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? Little by little. Come on, God, just knock out all my enemies. I don't want any more battles from this point forward. It's the battles that are going to make you strong. God doesn't want to rob you from the privilege of growth and strength. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee, until thou be increased and inherit the land. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. So there's another picture of this very concept in the book of Ezekiel. And what we see is, we have a lot of debate in Christianity over how the Holy Spirit works in the body. You know, these people will always, the church will divide over this. It's like, is the Holy Spirit given in full measure or is he given in incremental things? And then people are like, well, it's two stages. You have, you know, conversion, then you have a second blessing. And then people divide over that and they make all sorts of stink over these things. What we have in Ezekiel is a picture of the Holy Spirit and the increase of it. And so what we see is a progression a deepening. One of the things I could say very simply about the kingdom of heaven is all the parables show something. You're entrusted with little. When you invest it properly, you get more. Just how it works. It's the principle of increase. Okay, remember the name of this is the endless frontier approach. There is something about knowing that there's more that is very, very important. 
So though God has given you a step or a, a foothold in the land of promise, don't stop here. Just because Jericho fell, keep going. There's more to have. There's an entire territory that God wants you to go after. Many of us as Christians are sitting back and saying, oh, I already fought Jericho. I already saw it fall. And as a result, you have the enemies of Jericho that are rebuilding the walls. You see, you have to be active. You have to be continually pressing forward in your Christian life. Just like if you have a plant that is, you know, beautiful in the spring and you water it once, like, look at my plant. Look how beautiful it is. You got it from the nursery and it's looking really good. And then you stop watering it. What's going to happen to that plant? Even if it started out beautiful, if you don't continue to exercise what is truth for that plant, if you don't deadhead it, if you don't fertilize it, if you don't keep the grasshoppers and the caterpillars away, that, that plant is going to be ravaged. Because, not because God has it in for you, but because God desires to train you to exercise truth and to be constant in it. So the ever-deepening river, and the reason I can say this is speaking of the Holy Spirit, because in the New Testament, we're going to see Jesus refer directly to this river as being the Holy Spirit. And so we have a direct connection between Ezekiel 47, and by the way, this river of God that flows from the throne of God, this river that makes glad the nations, this river of life, as it is referred to, is very significant. And it it says, Jesus says, anyone who believes on me out of their innermost man will flow rivers of living water. Living water, life water. Blood is life to a Jew. It's red. And then you mix it with water. What do you have? You have living water. What flows out of Jesus' side? Blood water, living water. It flows out of his innermost man at the cross. Well, what's supposed to flow out of us? A river of living water. And then after he says that, he says, and this is the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given. In other words, we know the Holy Spirit is likened to a river of living water. And so in Ezekiel 47, it says, Afterward he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. If waters were issuing out of your house, you would be panicking. This wouldn't be a good situation. And this, in this description, it's just like totally normal. It's like, oh yes, and there's a river flowing out of the house. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under, from the right side of the house, at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without, unto the utter gate by the way that looks eastward. This is called the Ezekiel Temple. Never been built on earth, and yet it's being measured in the book of Ezekiel, very specifically. It's the perfect temple. We could liken it to Jesus Christ. It's a perfect temple, and out of this temple is going to gush a river. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. And he brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and he brought me through. The waters were to the loins. Afterward, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass over for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were, many, were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaves shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. So we have a picture of the kingdom of heaven. 
Okay, you look in the book of Revelation, you're going to see a similar thing. But if you look at this as being something that is taking place, we are the body of Christ. We are the house. We are the temple of the living God. And what's going to gush out of us? The Holy Spirit. So this is very interesting that you see it, what I call the ever-deepening river. And this is going to be what I'm going to refer to as an endless frontier sort of phraseology. So this man with his measuring uh, device comes out and says, hey, follow me. And he measures, and at first the river is up to the ankles. But then he says, come deeper, come onward. And then as he continues to walk forward another thousand cubits, it's up to his knees. And as he continues on, it's up to his waist. And then the waters are so deep, they're waters to swim in. What you see in this progression of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, as we listen to it, as we heed it, follow this. You see more of the river and less of the man. More of the river, less of the man. So, how does the kingdom of heaven work? Does the kingdom of heaven work where you just sort of show up, you believe, you pray a prayer, and then suddenly you're in the depths of the river? No. It starts with you recognizing there is a river and choosing to get in it. It's like, this has been opened up. I want that river. And then you progress and agree with the flow of that river, which, by the way, goes directly against the course of this world. But you have to choose to agree with that river. It is going into the Dead Sea, ultimately, and it's going to cause it to team for life. And that's, that could be your individual life. That could be us as a corporate body. That could be the world in which we live. But we are agreeing with this spirit, with this river. And we're saying, I'm going where you're going. And as we progress, it's more of the river, less of us. More of us is, we're lessening. God's increasing. Less of self, more of him. There are pockets of self inside of us that we haven't even recognized yet are there. And as we progress, it begins to be covered with water. We're like, whoa, what? what was that doing there? God, you've been putting up with me the whole time and I had that? Mm, I love you. And so he's working this. He's deepening us. And this is an incredible picture of the kingdom of heaven. So this is where the endless frontier started in my mindset. The guy's name is Dr. Scott. And he's a legendary vocal coach. That uh, gr- great story behind it. I was on the mission field, and uh, I, I was praying one morning. And I, I really desired to learn how to sing. And it sounds really strange. Most of you wouldn't even look at me as a singer, right? And so it's, it's sort of strange because it seems like a different part of my life. And yet, it was a big part of my life for a season. When Les and I were first traveling and speaking, we used to have concert events. Which, it's awkward because even as I say that, I could see you guys trying to look up music and things like that. But... It was, it was a big part of our life. And I remember uh, praying. It's like, God, could you teach me how to sing? My mom was always an excellent singer. My mom and I, she tried to teach me piano. It's like I, she couldn't teach me. I was like so difficult. For, we're like oil and water together. And, so, and she was also a great singer. But all she would say is, Eric. And she knew that she wanted to teach me, but I didn't want to listen to her. She was like, just sing from down here. That was her final summation. It's like, you're, just sing, you're singing from up here. You need to sing from down here. And so that was my great lesson uh, growing up. And I was like, okay, God, I think I need more than that. And so when I was praying one morning, I actually felt like God spoke to me. Okay, you, you guys know I don't throw out statements like that very often. And it was, Eric, I want to teach you how to sing. And I have a, great, a man of great gifting and great ability that I will lead you to. Okay, that was young Eric Ludy holding on to something. It's like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? And so I came home from the mission field. I was in Bulgaria at the time on, on the mission field. And I came home. And I had this thing that I felt like God wanted to teach me how to sing. And so I, 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 at the time, I looked at it as a mistake. I told my mom that. 
It's like, oh, I shouldn't have told my mom that. You know, but I was trying to open up to my mom. I wanted to build a better relationship with my mom. And so I was like, and I really felt like God spoke to me something. And so, oh, Eric, what was it? So I shared this. And then immediately she says, you know what? Our, uh, you know, we had this lady that would come in and clean our house named Carla. It's like, Carla has a vocal coach. And, you know, I bet she would, uh, you know, give a good word. Maybe you could get in with him. And I'm thinking, Carla... This is a man of great gifting and great ability. Our housekeeper, I'm sure that's not the man. That's ridiculous. Carla, the housekeeper's vocal coach. I mean, I'm looking, I'm aiming higher here. And so then my mom goes and pursues this vocal coach. Carla make, you know, puts in a good word. I have a meeting with him. And I was so upset that my mom was meddling in what God wanted to do in my life. It's like, excuse me, mom, but could you just leave this to God? Okay. If God wants to bring a man of great gifting and great ability, then he can. And this guy, I'm there's no way that this guy is the one because it was my mom, right? If my mom's a part of it, then it's like, no way. Uh, can God do that? And so she sets up this thing. I'm like, okay, I'll come. And we come into this dumpy music store. And it's supposedly uh, this coach or this teacher was in the back room. Uh, and I'm looking around. I'm judging it, the book by the cover. Okay. I'm like, this is a dump. There is no way. I can't believe I'm here. Let's just go. Let, my, and my mom needed to use the restroom, so I'm standing at the counter, and the guy says, you trying to get in with Scott? I go, yeah. Is that his name, Scott? Yeah. And, you, and he said, you do know that he has a 250-person waiting list. Are you serious? You don't know who you're meeting with? Not, uh, I guess not. Uh, he goes, he's one of the top five vocal coaches in the world. What? Really? And I'm really glad my mom wasn't there to hear all that. (laughs) But long and short, I get in with Scott. Why Scott took me is a mystery still to this day. And so he became my vocal coach. He's like a Yoda, okay? Yoda doesn't look very good, right? But he's very wise. And that's the way Dr. Scott is. Dr. Scott, I mean, he's this thin guy with this huge belly. It's one of the most odd looking characters you would ever see in your entire life. He drank these tubs, I mean three or four tubs of cool coffee all throughout the day. He didn't wear shoes and his socks would hang off his toes about a foot and he'd walk around and I mean it was, it was a sight to behold, right? And this man was a master teacher. I didn't understand it at the time but he studied me, figured out what would motivate me and that's what he did. And my motivation, which I'm not too happy about, is I pursue compliments. I pursue encouragement. And he wouldn't give it. And so I was thinking at first, okay, I'm working with a master vocal coach. How long would it take to be a professional? A month? Wouldn't that, I mean, wouldn't that be about right? A month? I mean, just sort of fine-tune me and get me going, okay? Am I, am I done yet? And so he started me off on, he changed the way my facial structure needed to work for singing. And so... He had me do this thing called the square mouth. Uh, and so everything I did, everything, I had to do it like this. Because I had to remove uh, my lips from my teeth. And so this is your treble sounds and your bass sounds on the bottom. And so actually you have a built-in EQ into the human voice. And so if you have more bass, you add more treble. And you need to learn how to control your lips down to the micro movements. 
And so there was an Easter play that came up, and I was going to be singing uh, a song in the Easter play. And my mom said, you are not doing that square mouth. And so I, I came to Scott, and I said, my mom said that she won't come if I have to do the square mouth. And he says, you're doing the square mouth. I'm going to come and make sure you will, I will you know, ditch you as a student if you don't keep the square mouth. You keep the square mouth until I say so. So this is you know, like this history. And I had been tr- taking with Scott. For about a year, and by the way, I did the square mouth in the Easter play, my, to my mom's eternal shame, uh, as she's sitting there in the audience, uh, as I, uh, <laughs> but after a year, I had, I, I'd been killing myself for this guy. He, when I first got in with him, he said, uh, so Eric, you want to be a good singer, huh? He goes, yes, I do. He goes, how good? Well, I, I want to I wanna be really good. I want to be professional. I want to be, like, really good. It's okay. All right. I need you to train six hours a day. Whoa, whoa. So, whoa, six hours? And I said this. This is a very bad first impression that I made, but this is what I said. Who has six hours a day for singing? This is his answer. Those that want to be the best. That was his simple response. It's like, oh. Okay, six hours, six hours, six hours. So I went home telling my mom, I was like, six hours? <laughs> That's ridiculous. So throughout this whole year, I killed myself for this guy. And every week that I would come in, he'd ask me for an hour count. How many hours? 26. And he'd be like, oh, why do I even keep you in my schedule? 20, you know how hard it is to have 26 hours of singing in a week? I was killing myself. This guy never satisfied him. He was always upset with me that I was not taking it seriously. And I could not figure out how to take it more seriously. And so after a year of him being mad at me, never once did he compliment me. Never once did he give me any indication that I was anything better than the worst singer on earth. I finally got up the guts to ask the question. I bounced on my toes a little and I said, Scott... How good am I? He laughs. That was his response. He laughs. He goes, oh, you finally got up the guts to ask. Oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, Eric, you played soccer, didn't you? I go, yeah. How old were you when you started playing soccer? He's like, seven. He goes, okay. Imagine you're seven. You've been playing soccer for one month. How good were you? I go, I stunk. He goes, exactly. So this is, I mean, this is a devastating moment for young Eric Ludy. And he says, but before you get discouraged, I'm thinking, oh, I'm way past discouragement now, Scott. Before you get discouraged, you need to realize something. You are one step into an endless frontier. And you're asking me how far you've gone. You've gone one step into an endless frontier, but you're one step further than 99.99% of the rest of the human race. But never pitch your tent. You see, he recognized something in me, and that is that I was just trying to get to some level. I wanted to get to some place, this flat piece of land, which was called professional, and then I was going to set down my tent. I mean, what? <laughs> I'm not going to work harder than I need to. So where's the flat piece of land? That's what he sensed the whole year. It's like, how much longer do I need to do this square mouth? How much longer do I need to practice like this? How much time, many years do I need to do it where you keep saying how many hours of training? I want to get done with this. It's like, Eric, you've taken one step into an endless frontier and you're asking me how far you've gone. Gone one step. But that's one step further than 99.99% of the rest of the human race. Do not pitch your tent.
that one comment has changed my life. Because I recognize in every area of my life, I'm a tent pitcher. I just want to be above everyone else. Okay, so where's the status quo? Where's the average? Where's the B? I want to be A minus. Okay, in other words, I'm aiming high, guys. Most people don't even care about those things. I'm aiming high. And yet, what he did is he sort of messed up my entire worldview, which is, I'm just trying to get just above. He says, Eric, there's so much more. You've taken one step. I spent a whole year averaging over two hours a day and I'd only taken one step? And what that did is it busted my paradigm. Whoa, how much further is there? What else is there to discover? And this has changed my life, guys. You start applying that to your Christian life and it will dramatically alter everything you do. So the principle of the endless frontier, never pitch your tent. You know, many of us as Christians, we approach Christianity saying, all right, what's the flat piece of ground that I can come to? And then God will pat me on the back and say, you've arrived. Yep, you got everything, right? You got it together. The moment you pitch your tent is the moment you decline. But the moment you recognize, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit wants to take me onward, upward, further in. I want to go where he's going. Pioneers versus settlers. This is like this whole thought process I had. Remember, you, you show up in the new world. And how does a settler think? A settler thinks, it's like, hey, there's dangers out there. I mean, I'm not interested in being the one to find them. So if, hey, you're one of those wild-eyed pioneers, you go for it. Hey, I'll give you the thumbs up. You go out and find out what's out there. It's called map making. Our generation needs map makers. We have a whole generation of Christian settlers that are hanging out with their tents pitched. And we're saying, well, I don't know about all that. You read the Bible, and what do we say? It's like, I think there's more, guys. Something's wrong. We're, we're not walking this way. We're not living this way. And so we justify and say, well, I'm not going to be the one to go out there. Or should you? What if we were a church? Just Okay, this is obviously the whole reason I'm bringing this up. What if we were a church that doesn't settle? That doesn't say, oh, well, we're one degree better than the rest of the uh, church culture out there. And so, hey, thumbs up, let's pitch our tent. Instead of saying, what if we recognize as a church we've taken one step into an endless frontier? We may be one step further than 99.99% of the rest of the churches out there, but we cannot pitch our tent. So the endless frontier approach, TIFA a whole little phrase for it today. So the endless frontier approach. So we're going to call it tifaing. It's a whole action now. It's a verb that it became. We're going to tifa marriage. This is how it first started with me. I had this young girl named Leslie in my life. And I remember beginning to think, what if I took what Scott is saying about singing and I applied it to this? And And I said, wait a minute. What if I were to lay a foundation and treat marriage as if it's an Olympic event. And I were to train for it the same way I've been training for singing. And I were to say, how can I be excellent in knowing how to love this person, how to serve this person, how to cultivate this relationship? What if I didn't look for a plot of flat ground and just pitch my tent, but I I pressed on and I said, more, God, I want to go deeper, onward, upward in my marriage. I want to have The greatest marriage that has ever existed. What if all of us did that? What if we had a secret competition? 
And one of us pulls forward and the other one's like, not on my watch. And we're actually desiring to be more excellent, to be refined, to be sharpened more and more to reveal the glory of God in and through these dimensions of our life. The world puts no value on. The world isn't cheering on grand marriages. It's trying to tear them down. But we as Christians say in God's system of economy, this matters. So let's put our emphasis here. It's funny, if you train to have a world-class marriage, the world doesn't care. They don't applaud. They don't stick you on CNN and say, tell us about your marriage. You see, there are things in this world that if you put time in, it actually demonstrate to the world something that, they, that appeases them. And you could get microphones in front of you, but the things that God esteems usually have no applause. If we are pursuing the endless frontier as a church, CNN won't care. In fact, they'll just look at us as a threat. And so actually we'll have more problems. It's funny, it's, a, it's like a backfire on us. We focus on God's agendas and we give all that we have, all that we are to pursue God's ends and we actually have more problems in this life. It's like, what kind of deal is that? We're Christians. We signed up for this. We know exactly what this is about. So Tifa in family. What if? By the way, guys, just preparing this stuff is very important for me. Because though I have had these thoughts in my head for decades, it's funny how they marginalize and diminish. It's sort of like the volume just sort of slowly turns down. If you don't constantly attend to the volume knob, it just sort of turns down. And so for me, even this week, to say, okay, yeah, Lord, I've been, especially because of the season I've been going through, you sometimes go into more of a maintenance mode. We're just like, okay, we've got all the buttons pushed, all the sound up where we're supposed to be. And instead of like, let's progress this thing. Let's progress? That takes like energy. That takes time. That takes investment. But what if we said, I'm not going to pitch my tent? The devil's always trying to whisper, you're fine. You're, you've gone far enough. Just settle there, okay? You got the B plus. That's all that matters. I don't want a B plus. I want to go onward, upward. Tifa in ministry. Ministry is hard. And to continue to allow God to press you forward. You see, when you begin to Tifa, sorry to invent a word and to share it with you guys. You like it? Yes. Uh, to Tifa, your spiritual life, you know that it actually is a certain agony to actually press forward and not accept where you're at. And to say, God, I want more. God, I want more of you. God, I want richer prayer times. You know that prayer is labor? And so when you begin to say, God, I want to go deeper in prayer, there's, there's a statement from A.W. Tozier that says, pray until you pray. It's actually a quote that is really hard for me because I repeat it to myself all the time. But there, I know, I've tasted it, guys. I know when I'm really praying and I know when I'm sort of praying. You see, there's an introductory prayer that you need to work through and labor through to get into prayer. And so to pray until you pray, oh, that's like, oh, that's hard. And so I'd rather not have quotes like that out there, but that's an endless frontier type of quote. It's like, Eric, roll up your sleeves. I've had it, one, one of the principles of my life is like when Leslie wants to talk, you know that feeling, as men in here, we know those, those things where the wife's like, could, could we maybe find some time to talk? And you know when that, that time always comes up? It's like when you're extra tired, too. It's like, why do they pick that time? I, you know, I've had the thought at times where Leslie sees me like starting to fall asleep like this on the chair, you know, and I'm like, oh, I need to walk around. And then uh, she says, could we talk? 
I'm thinking, I think she just saw me nodding off and she's now asking for the talk. And yet, whenever she has asked for that talk and I don't feel like I have the substance for the talk, when I agree with the talk and I go, let's do it. And I press forward instead of looking for that flat piece of ground to pitch my tent and fall asleep, but to say, let's do it. I know the importance of this and I recognize that there's a spiritual battle. Something's trying to to dim my ability to focus right now. Something's trying to make me tired. I'm going to rise up against it. But to resist is hard. It's labor. Tiefling Church, we have something very precious here. So if you were to say, hey, uh, Eric, what do you think? How good are we? Well, when did you guys start playing soccer? Was that seven? You've been playing for one month. How good were you? 2014. So you've been, uh, you've been playing for one month. You know, how good are you? You know, it's okay to recognize that we're young and that we're immature in so many ways. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. Though if we measure against other churches, we may be great. But I don't want us to measure against other churches. I want us to recognize that God has an agenda for us as a body. And I want us to grow up under the full maturity of it. So the Japanese word for this, I learned this in business school, is kaizen. And so if you were ever in business, you know the word. It's a, it's a very, it's a, it was a buzzword, a hip word at times. I don't know that it still is. You know, but there was a time when if you were in business, you just drop the word and other business people would be like, oh, he knows what he's talking about. He understands Kaizen. And what it means is constant improvement. It's, it's the Japanese sort of had this figured out. They'd take all the American inventions and then they'd make them better. And that's actually how they begin to overcome us in technology. And before the Japanese had Kaizen, God had sanctification. You see, this is the concept. The Japanese didn't come up with constant improvement. This is God. God is the one that came up with the idea of, okay, I appreciate your obedience up to this point. Let's go onward. You know, if I just rested and I say, look, I've worked out. I've exercised diligently for this past month. And then what would uh, Aaron Vogel tell me about my continued training? Do you think I should just rest? I, the moment I stop exercising is the moment that Eric becomes the blubber dude. In other words, I will lose whatever strength I have if I do not continue to exercise it. This is the way God made us. We could complain about it all day long, but we have to continue in what we know. The moment you let down what you know to be true, you stop watering your plants because, hey, it's a little difficult out there. I mean, to do that is going to be labor today. The moment you stop doing it is the moment they begin to wither. The same is true with our soul. We have been given one shot at this thing called life and endurance and perseverance is of the utmost importance in it. We know what to do. Let's do it. And let's do it consistently and let's go after greater life, not just to maintain what we already have. Oswald Chambers, great quote. The proof that we have the vision is that we are reaching out for more than we have grasped. It is a bad thing to be satisfied spiritually. Andrew Murray, again, one of my favorite quotes. You will ask me, are you satisfied? Have you got all you want? God forbid. With the deepest feeling in my soul, I can say that I am satisfied with Jesus now. But there is also the consciousness of how much fuller the revelation can be of the exceeding abundance of his grace. Let us never hesitate to say this is only the beginning. Spiritual mathematics. One of the things that we'll notice about the kingdom of heaven is that there's always increase. There's always the potential of increase. But what we have is mathematics. That God came up with mathematics. You want to teach mathematics from a biblical worldview? You need to remember that God invented it. He's the one that created the heavens and the earth and embedded into it is the idea of math. 
subtraction, addition, multiplication, division. Did I say division twice? Sounded like I did, but okay, good. Some, some people were listening. All right. So spiritual mathematics. So when we talk about your life, God intends you to increase. God intends you to increase in fruit production. God in, intends to multiply blessing upon you. God intends to actually add to your life, which means you're not finished where you're at. So if he can multiply, if he can add, that means that what you have today is not yet fully what he intends you to have. That's just logic, guys. And yet there are some people that are so ornery on the point to say, we have everything right now. And it's like, well, it's like my kids having the entire inheritance of Eric Ludi. It's true. They have it. It's in their name. They are a Ludi child. They have it, but they don't have it in fullness yet, practically. So for instance, and I've used this illustration a lot, I have a riding lawnmower. Some of my kids, they could say, that's my riding lawnmower. Their friend comes over, that's my riding lawnmower. Uh, they're, They're telling the truth. They're not lying. They have it in the inheritance. It comes with the estate, right? If you want to say it that way. However, they have no privilege to ride on it yet because they haven't proven faithful with smaller responsibilities to start taking on the big stuff. So as a result, though it is theirs, they still have to prove faithful with little to be entrusted with the more. So do my kids have all? Yes. But they are going to have it in ever-increasing measure depending on their faithfulness with the small. And so though it's true that we have the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, we have all of Christ, and we have all that Christ is, we need to prove faithful with what we have. You've been given a talent of gold or ten talents of gold. What are you going to do with it? Because if you bury it, you'll lose it. But if you invest it, you exercise it, you will increase and get more. So according to the measure of the gift of Christ, increase our faith, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Isn't that a weird statement? How could Jesus, who is perfect, increase in wisdom and stature? He must increase, I must decrease. The word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied. God gave the increase, the measure of faith, the proportion of faith, dividing to every man. Multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love. When your faith is increased, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Great endless frontier statement. So, daring to ask for more. This is just an incredible statement. We have the, the parting of Elijah in, and so they actually are in the land of promise. They actually cross the Jordan into the wilderness region, and Elijah and uh, Elisha are in this final movement. It's very similar to the ascension of Jesus Christ, very similar. And so what you're going to see in this is Elijah is sort of going to be like the Christ figure, and Elisha is going to be like the church. The church is the one that sees him rise. And what falls? His mantle. And so what, does Je- what falls after Jesus goes up? His mantle. The Holy Spirit. His very life. The very life that raised him from the dead is now given to us. What are we going to do with it? Well, that's what's so significant about this scene. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Ask. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion, good mathematics right there, guys, a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now, I just want to pause there for a second. If you are being asked to ask, and you're looking at the prophet Elijah, I don't know that any of us in here, if we hadn't read this scripture and this story, would think to ask for double what Elijah had. Because you know what that presumes? Elijah doesn't have it all. That'd be really hard for us to even conclude because Elijah, there's never been a prophet like Elijah. 
Never has anyone raised a dead person to life. Elijah come along, comes along and does it. He called down fire from heaven. He prayed and the heavens were bolted shut and no rain came for over three years. Then he prayed and it rained. And you're going to have the audacity to ask for double? And so look at even what Elijah says. He says, and he said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it. It's one of the key lines in all of scripture right there. Elisha saw it. Why does that matter? Because it says if he sees it, he'll get it. If he doesn't, he won't. He saw it. Elisha saw it. So did the disciples. They saw him rise into the heavens. Does that matter? Oh, yeah. If you understand the significance of this, when that first parts and the second sees it, it's a big, big deal. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither and Elisha went over. And as I've said many times, you've ever heard me say this, that Elisha's recorded miracles are exactly double Elijah's in scripture minus one. While he was alive. And so he's, you know, laid in a sepulcher. It's like one of those structure types of things above ground. And after he's dead, these guys are carrying around this dead body and they didn't know where to put it. So they threw it in the sepulcher of Elisha and it pops back to life. And God's like, double. God really knows his math if if you catch this. So what we have is an incredible picture here. That even though we have Elijah... We have one that will do even greater works that follows. It is hard to even fathom that Jesus, when he leaves, would even say that to us, that greater works will follow. That what we as the church are to participate in is so expansive and beautiful and wondrous. And yet what we are seeing in our modern day isn't expansive, beautiful, and wonderful. We're seeing weakness and thinness and frailty. So if we set our our tent where we're at, I would say it would be one of the greatest miscarriages in history. When we have the word of God and we can see the grand vision and then we stop here, we settle here. There is no possible way that in a parting statement to you guys as a church that I can allow that to even be in your thought process. It is critical that we as a church recognize how much more there is. And yes, it'll take us into uncomfortable territory. And yes, it will stretch us. It will test us. Just like wind will test a young tree in its root system. But when you walk in the direction of God, you become stronger. Yes, the enemy hates it. And yes, the enemy will resist. And that's going to be a gift to your life, just as a weight room is to an athlete. You see, you are entering into a weight room saying, God, make me stronger. Whatever you intend for a body to be, I want to be that. So make me fit and ready for the challenge. We have a weight room. Church is a great, great, great room. And we walk into this world sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. That's a great exercise, by the way, guys. I mean, it will build you strong. If you choose to neglect the weights, if you choose to neglect those opportunities, you will grow weak. We have an opportunity to pull up tent stakes right now. So look at this line. Pull up those tent stakes. 
onward march. We are headed somewhere as a church. There's a momentum here and it's precious. I want us to hold that as sacred and not to allow any transition to throw us off of that. The leadership of a church, when the early church would lose its different leaders, like an apostle would be uh, killed or martyred, it doesn't mean the church changes. The church immediately has others that rise up into it. The same is true with any passing, any transition. We as a church are meant to be built for transition. The Maccabees, even though it falls into the apocryphal years and the 400 years of silence, it's a pretty incredible picture. You have the father of the Maccabees, it's it's a family, and they stand up against the Hellenization of the Jews. The, the father was asked to uh, kill a, to sacrifice a pig on the altar of Jehovah. And he will not do it because he was the priest. And so uh, the Greeks told him, if you don't do it, we're going to make a public spectacle of you. But if you do it, we'll give you money. He refused to do it. And so the Maccabean revolt begins. And the father is the hunted man in all of Israel. They want him dead because he has violated, he has stood up against and rebelled against this incoming governmental system. And so Father Maccabee, I don't remember his name, otherwise I'd give it to you. When someone says, oh yeah, but he's killed. He's hunted and he's killed. He has, I don't remember what it was, like five sons. The oldest son, without hesitation, rises up in his dad's place and keeps it going. Without flinching. That oldest son, killed. The second, rises up, takes the position, unflinching, all the way down the line. When I read that story, I was like, that's the way I want to build my family. Right there. But to do that, you know that that father has to be ready to entrust something. He has to have a confidence. There's two ways to lead. You could lead where everything depends on you, or you could lead where you are allowing yourself to be replaced. By the way, in a human sense, we don't want to be replaceable. In a human sense, if Eric steps down, I want you guys to suffer. I want you to go, oh, come back, please, don't, don't let us do this. That's a human sense. A God sense says, I want you to go stronger, go further in, further on. I want you to actually look back and say, thank you, Eric, for the foundation, but God's taken us even further. You see, as, a, as humans, we want to be needed, but in the kingdom of heaven, what we need is Jesus Christ. The secret to this church is not any man. It is God being central. It is Jesus Christ being preeminent in all things. And if we fight for that, then we keep our focus through this and we become stronger and sharper as we progress. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.